0: If you'll join me, we will read from today's scripture. This is from Lamentations 1, 1 through 4. And in our pew Bibles, this is page 685. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn. For none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hello. Good morning. We are going to be taking a short little break uh, through Easter uh, before we go back to studying First John. And during this Lenten season, we'll actually be looking at the Book of Lamentations. Um, how, curious to know how many of you have heard a sermon series through Lamentations before? Anyone? It's just, there's actually more of you here, even though there's more people in the first service, because you're more holy. <laughs> it's, it's just not a very popular book to study through. I think we can all agree on that, and I think even the title of the book tells us why. Like, why Lamentations? Oh, I'll skip that one. Um, but uh, I think it'll be very, very useful to prepare our hearts for Easter, which is what Lent's purpose is. And so we'll be also practicing some of um, some spiritual disciplines on your way in. you got this little pamphlet that Stephanie put together for us. Um, in it, it tells you the various spiritual practices we'll be going through together. Uh, fasting, almsgiving, scripture reading, prayer. Um, there's a little slot there for you to write down what it is and then you if you can share it with uh, our church in terms of uh, just as an encouraging note uh, there's a spot out as you walk out where you can place a post-it note just to encourage other people and just kind of share what you've been learning what you've been hearing just some encouraging messages during that time if you could put that there that'd be really really wonderful Um, these practices they're they're meant to just be helpful uh, to you during this this season, and um, we're just going to be concentrating on these four particular ones. We're not saying this is a comprehensive way, but the intent is just to prepare our hearts for Easter and what it means to be a Christian. And so we're just going to take these next several weeks to do that, to take time to observe, to commemorate um, the passion, the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, and. Uh, Uh, This is going to be a time for those who do not know Christ yet or 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 just kind of new to faith to learn and also to encourage you to be baptized, uh, which we're looking at happening at Easter. It's a time for backsliders to return to Christ. It's a time for people who do have a relationship with Jesus to grow, to renew our commitments to Christ. And so we'll use this time as a time of encouragement to fast, uh, to fast from something that we partake in daily and use that fasting period to remind us to draw closer to God. So every time you reach for that coffee, every time you reach for that meat, to dessert, social media, whatever it may be, um, that can be helpful to you to turn you toward God in those moments rather than partaking of that particular daily item that's probably a good candidate for you to pick in terms of what to fast from. My wife, my eldest two daughters, and I have chosen sugar, which I confess to you I've already broken twice since Ash Wednesday. I did fine on Wednesday, but then on Thursday I had a meeting with uh, two wonderful brothers, and one of them was uh, very generous and thoughtful, um, Andrew Howe. And he brought morning buns from La Farine and coffee. And I didn't even think about it. I was just starting it. So I didn't even think about it. And I took a couple bites and I thought, man, already? Like, <laughs> how, already? Like, a day? And it didn't register until I already had like a few bites. And then two nights ago, I was at this Malaysian restaurant with my family and some friends. And, and the owner brought out this complimentary shaved ice dessert, like a huge one. And gifted it to us, and this time it registered in my mind. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm fasting from sugar. That's sugar. Not going to eat it. And so I was there just praying that my friends and my two youngest daughters would finish it, (laughs) because um, it's not that I wanted it. I, I was fine not having it, but but I felt really bad because it was a gift. You know, it was a gift from the restaurant owner. She's just this really kind, generous lady. That every time we go in there, she gives us these Malaysian, Singaporean desserts. And this is one that she left there. She knows I'm a pastor, and so she's like, "Hey, pastor, hi, welcome again." In here. And here, and so I'm like, "Please finish it, please, please finish it." And they didn't. I was like, "I can't be rude. Like, this is very rude if I leave this there. I, it has to be finished." So I ate it, and then all of the while I'm eating it, my wife and my two oldest daughters are like weakling, like, ha ha, you can't even hold yourself back, and they're like teasing me the whole time, I'm like, you guys are just rude people, that's all it is. And so I ate it, and so I share with you two out of the last five days' failures, but it's used as an encouragement. To let you know that this time of Lent is to prepare our hearts for Easter. It's not meant to be some starvation period. It's not meant to be some like legalistic type of thing. It's meant to draw us closer to God. And which it did for me because it, the fasting is used as a time of repentance, and I did repent. It's used as a time of mourning, it's used as a time of remembrance, it's used as a time of prayer. And so these things that we do, these disciplines, that's what they're all about. The, the almsgiving is traditionally a practice to give to the poor. Now we don't have to get legalistic about it, but it is a time to sacrificially give to people who are in need. And it's to draw us closer to God by exercising this act of sacrificial love as a reminder as Jesus' sacrificial love for the salvation of believers, Praying together, reading the scriptures together—all of these practices within this little, little booklet here—to draw us closer to God and to prepare our hearts for Easter. Which is what Lamentations hopefully will do. Even though we look at it and like, "Oh my gosh, like, why did you choose Lamentations?" And hopefully, um, it'll make sense as the weeks go by. Even this morning, um, as we are processing through this as a staff and praying through and kind of reading through and what we're doing and the themes about it, it, it is really, really shaping up to be very rich. And so um, before we jump into Lamentations, I just need to give it a little bit of um, context to this. And if you've been here the last few years, you're probably pretty familiar with the context that is Uh, surrounding the Babylonian exile, the Babylonian captivity, since we've gone through the book of Nehemiah, Daniel, Haggai. So you probably have a good understanding of the context of this time. And for you, this will be a revisitation. But if you're newer, um, we'll go over this kind of briefly. The scholarly, historical, traditional thought is that this book was authored by the prophet Jeremiah. And it's a writing that is about the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC. It was a very, very devastating time where the temple was completely destroyed. Uh, Judah is left in ruins. And so if you can just imagine a thriving city that is now just burnt to the ground, totally deserted. Inhabitants have been forcefully Taken out of the city to be relocated elsewhere that they don't want to be, and so that's the background of lamentations. And and this is the thing that Lamentations addresses. Where does someone find hope when everything around them has been decimated? Where does one find hope when everything around them is gone? And I think um, we can get a better understanding of this if we put ourselves in the shoes of those in Wuhan, China, where streets are virtually empty, businesses are closing down, trade has virtually stopped. It seems like the city has been deserted, and people are suffering, and they're dying, and I'm This is one thing I'm not saying is that that is judgment against them from God because that is what happened to Judah. That this is a judgment. What I'm simply doing with China is just trying to draw a picture of what Judah went through and not saying that this is a judgment on China. But how do we deal with suffering, loss, pain, distress? And this is what Lamentations is addressing. The suffering in Lamentations is actually a justified suffering, which may be hard for some of us to hear because they kind of like an oxymoron. How can suffering be justified? But it is a justified suffering for Judah's covenant unfaithfulness. And it's very unlike the suffering that we find in Job. Job's suffering deals with no identified sin, which is why that book is like my least favorite book. I have a really, really hard time understanding that book because Job's suffering is really mysterious and um, I'm I'm personally not all that particularly fond about it um, and I find it really, really difficult to read. Lamentations, on the other hand, I I can kind of better understand because the suffering is caused by unfaithfulness. Like There's a cause to this effect. And so for this study, we're not going to read every verse And you're going to be able to tell why towards the latter and I'll be able to explain that. Um, And so typically for our church, we go through books verse by verse. And this one, we're not going to. um, And there's a reason for that. So we're going to take a look at this in a more broad stroke. And um, hopefully as you read through this, you're going to understand why we're doing this. And so in chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5... There are 22 verses each, and then in chapter 3, I believe it's 66 verses. So, same thing with the reading plan. Uh, 22 verses, not that big of a deal, right? You're reading through, and then there's a reason why those four chapters have 22 verses. That middle Wednesday, you're like, oh, that's a long chapter. They're really short verses, though, super short. So, go ahead and do that. And then, on weekends, you're just reading one verse each day on the weekend, so. Relief. Respite, yes? So, Pretty easy to follow through there. Um, First, let's take a look at just some observations in Lamentations chapter 1. And you'll notice that in verses 1 through 11, the vast majority of this section is written in the third person. So you'll see the she, her, you see those pronouns there. And then from verses 12 through 22, it's mostly in the first person. It's my, I, where Zion is speaking about herself. Another thing to keep in mind are these phrases about comfort. So look at verse 2. She has none to comfort her. Verse 9. She has no comforter. Verse 16. For a comforter is far from me. Verse 17. But there is none to comfort her. Verse 21. Yet there is no one to comfort me. So keep all these things in your head. There's no comfort here the pronouns of third person from the first half to the first person in the second half. Here's another observation. There's these interspersed prayers that we find in this chapter. The first one we find here is verse nine, where it says, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Verse 11, Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Which is a main theme that we're looking at in terms of prayers, just asking the Lord to look, to see. And then verses 20 through 22. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I've been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions for my groans are many and my heart is faint Now, from these observations it seems that Lady Zion wants us to hear about what's happening to her and to listen to her for us to feel her anguish to feel her loss and what has she lost? quite a bit take a look at verse 3 Judah has gone into exile so she has lost her home Verse 4, the roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan. She has lost her place of public worship. She lost the privilege to worship. Verse 5, her children have gone away. She has lost her children. Verse 6, her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. She has lost her community, her civic, her political leadership. She has lost that whole fabric of holding a community together. Verses 7 through 9. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. And skip down to, for they have seen her nakedness. And then skip down to, her uncleanness was in her skirts. So she has lost dignity. She has lost respect. She has lost honor. Verse 11. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food. She has lost provision. Verse 19. My priests and elders perished in the city. She has lost spiritual leadership, she's lost a lot. And so do you feel her loss? Do you feel her anguish? So many losses, and then looking back to verses 2, 9, 16, 17, 21, no one to comfort her. Now it's one thing to suffer loss if you can suffer it with someone. You have someone there to go with you through that pain. It's a totally different thing when you have to do it all alone, isn't it? all alone, no one to be there with you. And so here Judah is alone and they are suffering a lot. Now how do you know when you're suffering a lot? There's this word here that's used in the Bible that conveys this and it's the word "groan." You know how bad it gets when you just don't even have words and all you can do is make this guttural, inarticulate sound and just be like, oh. Like, there's nothing you can say, or there's not, it's just this way to convey pain and despair and grief. And it's just like this inarticulate sound you make. Take a look at verse 4 her priests groan. Verse 8, she herself groans. Verse 11, all her people groan as they search for bread. Verse 21, they heard my groaning, yet there's no one to comfort me. 22, for my groans are many and my heart is faint. Things are really bad. And it is a very, very miserable time. And all of this anguish comes out in this question in verse 12 when she says, Is it nothing to you? Is all of this nothing to you? All who pass by, is this nothing? And then her suffering is expressed in the rest of that verse. Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me. And then you notice who inflicted this upon her, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. The author wants us to see what is happening to Zion. That you can't run away from it. You can't sweep it under the rug. You can't ignore it. You are going to see this. And you're going to have five chapters of seeing it. And you're going to feel it. Why? In order for you and I to deal with our sin, we have to see it. We have to feel it. Otherwise, you don't deal with it. And you can't be cold to it. You can't be indifferent to it. You have to deal with it because we suffer from our own sins. And if you don't feel it and see it, then you won't deal with it. And so here he's presenting this and showing us, do you feel this anguish? Do you sense the loss? Do you see it? Do you feel it? Do you see it? Because if you can't feel pain, suffering, anguish from sin, you can't address it we won't be able to see our need for Jesus Christ and what Jesus did on the cross for us as we're preparing our hearts for Easter if we can't see and if we can't feel our sin. Also, do we feel, do we see the sins of other people? And why should we? Because we're not to judge or condemn other people. We're not to do that as Christians, are we? Absolutely not. Our perspective is more from the perspective of 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity in mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. See, Christ saw and felt what sin does to us. And so as we share the good news of Christ... Because we see and we feel what will happen to others. Not condemning them, not judging them. But we've, always, we've all experienced those who evangelize with a motive and a heart that is off. And it doesn't come across very nice. It doesn't come across very good. Do we have the unity of mind? Sympathy. Sympathy brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. And so we ready our hearts for Easter as we look at other people like this. And may we feel the anguish sin causes and see it and look to Christ, our deliverer, for them, for us, as we prepare our hearts. Now let's look at another uh, block of scriptures here in this chapter, verses 12 through 19, where things move from first person in verses 1 through 11 to first person in 12 through 19. And this is a signal that things are getting a little bit more personal in terms of um, that suffering and that anguish, that distress. And we know from verse 12 that it was the Lord who inflicted, but it's not the only verse that tells us that. Verse 5, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. That Judah is being judged for her covenant unfaithfulness back to verse 12 it says the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger and then verses 13 through 15 from on high, he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in the midst, In my midst. He summoned as assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a wine press, the virgin daughter of Judah. Pretty evident what's happening, yes? We can't blame it on anybody else. There's a lot of the Lord, He. So in verses 12 through 15, it's God. God inflicted the judgment for being unfaithful. There's no one to blame here. It is very clear it's God. Now, why is He doing this? He's not blaming God. He's not saying, like, see, it's Him, it's Him, it's Him. That's not His point. The author is pointing out truth. He's not blaming God for the judgment. The author knows what brought the judgment about and that this judgment is justified by him, God. It's a just ruling for what has happened. And the author is clarifying what happened and all the stuff that God did, he's right. Look at verse 18. The Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled against his word. And so do we hear that truth? And sometimes we don't like this truth. But truth is truth and we can't avoid it forever. God only deals with truth. God only deals with reality. And that is where hope lies because hope cannot lie in a false reality. Hope does not exist there. Hope is not in lies because the lies cannot deliver. Real answers can only be found in an honest, truthful assessment of a problem. If we know the true assessment of the troubles that we face, then we can have hope in figuring out the solutions for that trouble. Only when we know truth. And Zion acknowledges this truth, but this wasn't the first time for them, was it? Because you go back to Egypt... Israel's now in the wilderness after coming out of Egypt, being set free, and yet what do they do? Golden calf. And then what do they do? They worship Baal during the time of the judges. And then they're saying like, well, you know why? Because we need a king like everybody else. Everyone else has a king. So let's have a king and things will be better. We'll do better. And then you read First and Second Kings and things aren't better. And then they just keep shooting themselves in the foot no matter what they are doing. And then here we are again showing the unfaithfulness in lamentations. And this is so much like us, isn't it? Time and time again, where we get delivered by God and things click for us, and then we find ourselves like, man, again, I ate a cinnamon bun, I ate shaved ice. whatever it is, like whatever I'm doing, right? I just do things, I just do things. Not, I guess it can be sinful, but do we hear the truth? Do we hear truth? Are we able to see the Lord's discipline? Now, um, before wrapping this up, I, I do want to point out um, how Lamentations is written by the author. It's, it's so creative, and um, the reasons why chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 are written with um, 22 verses is the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And so uh, what's happening here is um, it's an alphabetical acrostic, meaning that it's a poetic form of writing which each line of the poem begins with the sequential letter of the alphabet in Hebrew. And so that first letter of the alphabet uh, begins the first verse all the way through the 22nd letter of the alphabet in verse 22. And so in Hebrew, it's uh, A, B, G. So it's Aleph to Ta. And then we'd say A to Z for us, right? So for them, it's A to T. For us, we say A to Z. So you know how this is when when, when you want to say like things are complete, like, oh yeah, A to Z, we got this thing, it's all done. And so they'd say the same thing, A to T, it's complete. And so this is how these verses are structurally formed, which is why you can see now we're not going verse by verse because um, it's poetry. It's how, do you, how do you break that down verse by verse? So we're looking at it in more of a, a broad way so that we can get a better understanding. So these, things, uh, these verses are laid out in a sequential letter to the Hebrew alphabet. Four out of the five chapters in Lamentations are written in this acrostic way. And so we have to ask, why are they doing this? Now the thought behind this is that this is so that it gives us a complete expression of grief. A full, comprehensive one. A very thoughtful, purposeful way of recording for us grief and how this is being dealt with. Theologian and scholar Eugene Peterson, who was a very, very prolific writer, wrote in um, Five Smooth Stones for a Pastoral Work. This is a quote from his book. In such ways does the acrostic function. It organizes grief, patiently going over the ground, step by step, insisting on the significance of each detail of suffering. The pain is labeled, defined, and objectified. Eugene Peterson is... The gentleman passed away a couple years ago and attended a wonderful spiritual um, retreat with him right before his death, and he wrote the message. Um, always gain a lot of insight with Eugene. And So the author of Lamentations isn't just thoughtlessly just vomiting all of this anguish and grief to us. It's, it's actually a very thoughtful vomit, and a lot of thinking, a lot of thought, to express this really, really deep distress. And the author is giving us this complete picture of grief, and he isn't taking any shortcuts through that grief. And so it goes for 22 verses in four out of the five chapters, giving us great detail, describing for us, slowing us down to experience this grief as the author carefully thinks about what will be written next with the next letter. Now, of course, there is time to grieve in a way like this that is very methodical and thorough. And then there are other times, like usually on the onset of the grief, where it's just crying and groaning and expressing oneself without much thought, and it's just all emotion. In the Christian university I attended for undergrad I had the opportunity to build a, a friendship with the university president, and after I graduated, we maintained this friendship, um, and Dr. Felix is, is a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, very encouraging to me, even when I was in school, he'd write me these notes and put them in my school box, just to encourage me, and I was thinking like, why is a university president like me? Like, Why am I getting these letters? And then even many years later, as I started my career, he'd write these notes, um, to, me, to to my mail and he'd send send me things to encourage me like God has plans for you and all these sorts of wonderful things that he'd write me um, and then I got an update from him one day that his wife Vivian was diagnosed with terminal cancer and I knew even when I was 18 years old and a freshman at the college I kn- I saw them and I was like man those guys really love each other even though they're old like I was like oh, that's amazing and like they were just like teenagers and googly and holding hands, and I was just like, this is like gross. But I could tell that they loved each other so much, and then how much it grieved him when Vivian died. And it wasn't until many, many, many years later that he wrote the book, The School of Dying Graces, which you can buy on Amazon. And there the way that he did this was he he went back. After many years, and he looked up all the videos that they made with each other in them and looked at all the photos and looked in her diaries and read all of her entries and looked at journal entries when she was doing her devotionals and meditations and prayers and all these things and and went through all that stuff again, which drew up so much more emotion for him and was really, really painful. And the initial edge that he experienced, it did wear off after a while, and that initial bereavement wore off some, but then some things just don't change, and that many years later he still grieved, and many years later he still hurt, and he still cried. See, grief is a process, and it takes time, and sometimes it takes a really long time, and yes, the intensity changes, but it takes time, and Actually, the sorrow still remains. It doesn't just go away. There aren't any shortcuts, and it's a process that needs to be honest and truthful, and it's something he's not over 20 years later. You don't get over it. The Bible understands this. God understands this and the grief is alphabetized and methodical and thoroughly dealt with. It's a disciplined anguish. It's a thoughtful and ordered grief, and it's structured in such a way that it has to be thought through with selective words, and it is emotional, but it's coherent, but it's not raw emotion. It's this thinking grief, and there's an art to grieving. There's an art to mourning. It's not something to get over. See, mourning is worth the effort, which is why we're doing this. To remember the passion of the Christ, to remember that God did send his only begotten Son to die on the cross. And yes, there is a resurrection, but there was a deep mourning. In the loss of Jesus. And so let's appreciate this acrostic knowing that God cares deeply for our emotional health, for our mental health, that it's worth that emotional, creative thinking effort to prepare ourselves for Easter. Let's end our time looking at the prayer in verses 20 through 22. Um, Yes, there are these shorter prayers in 9 through 11, but we'll close with just looking at verses 20 through 22. It reads, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns and my heart is wrung within me. And so you'll notice this feeling, this true, honest feeling of distress. Because I've been very rebellious, and you notice that They're taking responsibility for this guilt. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. And so you notice the conditions of distress. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. Notice that loneliness. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. And so you notice the enemies around them who are not comforting them are actually celebrating at their demise. You have brought the day you announced, now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. And so here's this part of of that last verse there that is actually a, a doctrinal petition. That... The author realizes that what God says he'll do, he is going to do. And so he already knows that God said he is going to judge his own people for a unfaithfulness. But also God is going to judge his enemies. That God will bring to justice all the nations. He knows that this is doctrinal. And so Jeremiah chapter 27, verses, 20, verses 6 through 7, it reads this, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, God's servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. And so the author knows that theology. As, as does Lady Zion. They know that this was written. They know the entire story, which can be found in Jeremiah 50 and 51. And so you can see why many scholars do believe that the writer of this book of Lamentations is Jeremiah because of Jeremiah 27, Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51. They all know that it was God who inflicted this judgment on them for their unfaithfulness. But then the flip side of that is they also know that God judges their enemies and that God is a just God in his judgment. He is fair and he's the same God that they need to go to when they need help. They have the whole story. They know where they need to go and truth be told, where else can they go? Where else can you and I go? And the author And Zion know that God cares about these miseries that they're experiencing. Even though he's the one that judged them. That he's still the same God of Exodus chapter 3 verses 7 and 8. Where it reads, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the same thing for us. God who is going to come down, Jesus Christ, and bring us to deliver us. And we know that God is just, that God does discipline us, but we also know that God is good. And so when we experience dark nights, we need to pause and to think about who God is. It's hard to tell sometimes whether something is a judgment or something is just like Job. And you're suffering and it's mysterious and we don't know. And then other times, You did something, therefore you are suffering for it, and you know, like, I shouldn't have done that, and this is the price I'm paying. Anyway, we look at that, though. When we are angry at God, how do you address him? God! Lord! Father! Something interesting in there, in that there's an acknowledgement still of who that is. It's kind of like when you're upset at your mom and dad because they've disciplined you or they're doing something and you're like, but what do you still call them? Mom! Why'd you do that, Mom? I don't want that, Mom. Dad! I mean, you might add some different adjectives before the mom or dad, right? But you still address them as mom and dad. See, there's an acknowledgement in the title. And so even though you might be very angry, and you call God a different name or use a different adjective, you still know he's God. You still know you need to return to God. Just like as a child, it's still mom. It's still dad. Let's prepare our hearts for Easter. Let's start by seeing what sins we are guilty of and what we need to repent of. Let's pray. Lord, you are omniscient. You know all things. And even though things seem so grim in lamentations, and they actually seem pretty grim in our world today with record stock drops and not even knowing if something is a pandemic or not, and the unsettling things in the political landscape in America. There's just so much stuff that is going on. But in all of it, we know that you're in control. And so may those things not distract us because we are many, many centuries away from what happened over 2,000 years ago to Jesus Christ as we prepare our hearts for Easter Easter. May that tilling be done in our hearts as we fast and as we give and pray and read. May we be focused in this time that we can feel our sin, that we can see our sin so that we can honestly deal with it. In Jesus' name.